0: started off as a radio show. It did. So I mean, why did you make the why did you make the transition of the podcast? Uh, I started Comedy Bang
1: Bang merely as my friend offered me a radio show mm-hmm. on Indie 1031 and I grew up very fascinated by the radio. I would tape songs sometimes and I would I would pretend to be a DJ and I would like record my own radio like on 30 Minute cassette
0: tapes. You've got the radio voice thing down too.
1: Thank you. I mean, I also right have. have but we know, when you're on I the radio, this least. voice down too, don't I? The man of two voices. <laughs> i just vacillate between them. Yeah, but I always wanted to be a DJ, and I was always fascinated with like DJ humor in a way. Um, and I actually would call into DV- DJ. Like I was about to say zoo? DJ stations, but yeah, I would call into like comedy programs on on the radio. And I would like try to do comedy bits and stuff like that. So, and then I grew up listening to Doctor Domeno and stuff like that. So, w- when my friend offered me a radio gig, I jumped at it. And was like, yeah, I've always wanted to do it. I'll try it out. So that's really all it was. It Was just like a radio show. I had w- weird dreams of like being the morning person there. Like, oh, if I do it successfully enough, I'll be the morning person there. Oh, those were po- those were positive dreams.
0: Like <laughs> yeah. coming from you know doing you know, doing comedy on television to becoming the morning show guys. Well, you know, I I wasn't
1: performing a lot at that time. You know, I I was show producing and I was writing movies and stuff and, you know, but I loved the radio and I would, I would actually call into my, my friend was the morning show guy there and I would call into his show and I would do characters and stuff like that. And I just really liked radio. And so, yeah, I had, when I first started doing the show, I was like, oh man, maybe it'll be successful enough. I'll be the morning guy. Now, not realizing, of course, if you're the morning guy on a radio station, you have to get up at four in the morning um, so you can get there by six, and it's a drag and a grind. But for some reason, I was like, "Yeah, that's my that's what I want to do." Then I found out just because I I didn't I knew what a podcast was, but I didn't really think about the radio show as something that would podcast. Um, but the station started putting them up as a podcast because they wanted to kind of segue into having some of their material archived. And I started tracking the numbers of how many people listened to it as a podcast, and I was like, oh. And I, I would see the n- amount of people who had listened
0: to the radio live, and I was like, oh. Uh, it's like the radio The radio is almost like a middleman at this point.
1: Yeah, the radio, literally, the most they would ever have was 500 people listening to it. it and because it wasn't terrestrial, that's the other thing, is... Um, Indie1031 went to indie1031.com at that point. So there would be 500 people listening. It's basically a live podcast. Yeah. There'd be 500 people listening. Meanwhile, there'd be thousands and thousands of people listening to the podcast. And I would be like, Oh, I don't want to be the morning guy anymore. <laughs> I would much rather just do this as a podcast. So I took it, I took it over as the podcast and then. Um, a year into the radio show, we um, Jeff Ulrich and I started the Earwolf, the podcasting network and built our own studio and, and I moved it out of the radio at that point. And then it was still on the radio for a while until I think I listened one week and it wasn't on anymore and I checked in and they were like, oh yeah, we stopped playing
0: that <laughs> like three weeks ago. <laughs> so, so you know, the, the dream from, and it sounds like a legitimate dream of actually being a Radio Morning guy, um, to doing a podcast, was that was it something that you saw as you know being a potential living that you could actually make it you know kind of carve out a career for? Well, you know, I, I was making a living already, so that's the thing that is
1: great about the podcast for me it was you know I didn't get paid for it, so um, and that's why I was offered it by the way is because the station had just gone to internet only radio and they couldn't pay for any of their uh, show hosts. Mm-hmm. And my friend who worked there was like, I know a guy who already makes money, <laughs> who would who would do it for free. So I did it for free, you know. And um, so I never thought about it as something that I would like segue into, oh, I'll make a living out of this. I was definitely, when I first started doing comedy, I was a performer and I was, uh, I, I coming out of Mr. Show where I performed, um, I had some deals to write sitcoms for myself to star in. Um, and then just gradually, uh, the writing got to be more and more work for me, where I got tons of writing work. Um, I generally, after Mr. Show, wrote about three movies or TV shows a year, most of which did not get made. So, but I was making a really good living at that, um, and I got really good at
0: it. So I mean, Hollywood is at such a point where they're like, oh, it's the, the taint guy. <laughs> from Mister Show, let's let's offer it. No, a it wasn't.
1: It, it wasn't necessarily that. It was. It was. Um, to be honest, it, more of it. If you really want to know the the details, was right before Mister Show. My writing partner BJ Porter and I wrote a really funny movie script. And once you write a like one funny script, you can use it as a sample to get a ton of work everywhere. So from the moment that I wrote that, I was just could work consistently, um, and then. You know, every couple of years, you then have to write another really good script. So um, I wrote that one, I think, in 96. And then by 2000, I wrote the Tenacious D movie, which was very well received. And I I kind of used that as a sample for a while. And then um, I wrote a really funny script for NBC um, that almost got made. And so, you know, you kind of like keep writing new funny scripts, and and you can use it as a sample to get other work. And and then I wrote, you know, like, a bunch of uh, DreamWorks animated stuff, like Shark Tale, um, and I wrote the sequel to to that, which never came out, and, and I wrote a, one of the first drafts of Puss in Boots, you know. So, like, you know, I was working consistently as a writer, and I, I thought I was going to get more into directing or producing. I did a pilot for Fox – sketch show pilot which is how between two ferns started because that was a piece you know i was it. at the i was at the shooting of that actually
0: i was just thinking of that today oh actually. that's so crazy yeah because it, it it kind of was what like six years ago it's kind of a blur it was, it was a while kind of, ago yeah do you yeah. remember between two ferns from that i or? do i do remember yeah i do remember that
1: yeah um, so you know like i worked pretty consistently but i i thought you know what my time as a performer is probably over so I just did the podcast and the radio show for fun because I was like, itching to get back into stuff like that. W- was that. Was that
0: a painful decision to make, to, to stop being in front of the camera?
1: The, the one part that wasn't painful about it for me was the, the auditioning is brutal when you live in L.A. It's, um, if you really want to focus on being an actor, you have to be prepared to do like three auditions a day
0: silly question but somebody for somebody who's totally outside of that world um you don't get to circumvent that at all having you know a a proven track record
1: i have circumvented it in one way if you ever see me on a tv show it's because i was offered it (laughs) by a friend (laughs) uh curb your enthusiasm the sarah silverman program um any show that i've done recently Children's Hospital. Um, they've all been because a friend has offered it to me. Um, I, I don't know why, but I'm not that great of an auditioner. Actually, I did audition for the first Sarah Silverman program uh, episode that I did, and I beat out John Hamm for that part. Um, this pre Mad Men. That was, that was the role of super handsome guy. <laughs> no, no, he was too handsome to do it. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't get to circumvent that, unfortunately. So you know, the part I didn't miss was auditioning because you would have to like most auditions are on the west side, like in Westwood or, you know, Venice Beach, and, and, you know, which is so far away from where I live. I remember one day I went and I auditioned for the movie What Planet Are You From, the Gary, Gary Shandling movie. Vehicle, yeah. I walked in. It was in Century City, which, if you live in L.A., Century City is the absolute furthest point from anywhere else in California. Um, just because of the traffic, it, 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 it you have to go through to get there. So I in the middle of the day, I, I drove out to Century City, It took me an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 45 minutes to get there, which is like traveling to, that's like going up to wine country. (laughs) Like you may as well be going on vacation at that point. So I walked into the room and the casting director looked at me and said, oh, you're not right for this. And I said, oh, she goes, I have another part for you. Here, take a look at this script. And I looked at it and she goes, do you want to run it? And I go, you really just want me to say this one word? And it was the word no. (laughs) No. And she goes, yeah, have at it. And I said, no. She goes, perfect. <laughs> and then I drove another hour and 45 minutes home, never heard from her again. And, you know, that's what that's what auditioning is like as an actor and my wife is an actress. And so she, I see it, you know, she's out there constantly hustling. And to do that, you don't have time to write. Especially not at the level that I was at, you know, like the stuff I was doing for DreamWorks, like Shark Tale and Puss in Boots and stuff like that. That is a daily job that you go in and you work at from the morning until night. You're in the middle of meetings. And that's a lot of what writing is, too, is like taking meetings and and writing the next project as well. So that's the part that I just never had time for. And the auditioning part of it and it just kind of slipped away and, but I did miss it obviously because, you know, doing the podcast was sort of my remedy for that.
0: that that's actually interesting to hear about writing. And, and I don't know if that's um, just in the cases of these like animation studios or h- how much of that is actually for like generally actually going in. Cause I, I, I kind of picture screenwriting as being this very sort of solitary thing. So hearing that you're going into pitch meetings and that maybe you have to work in that office is a little surprising to me. There's
1: a lot of different writing jobs I've taken. Some are very solitary. That one in particular was not because um, when I came into the movie Shark Tale, most animated, computer animated movies take three years to make um, from inception to delivery. Um, I came in at the two-year process or the two-year part of the process with a year to go. Some of it was animated already. Most of it was still in storyboards. And they were still trying to figure out the story at that point. I mean, that's isn't that crazy? It's sh- I mean, shocking, yeah. That movie basically started as a very different script, I think. Originally that maybe originally only had like 50 pages written
0: of it. So let, let's let, let's actually... Let, I want to break that down a little bit. So wh- what, where was the story at, if there was a story at all, when you arrived? And, and what did it turn into?
1: There was... From what I can recall, and this may or may not be true, the original writer had a movie in mind about a group of sharks. It was the sh- sharks doing The Godfather. Okay? So, sounds funny, right? So, uh, he wrote a lot of that script. Then, I think what happened is Jeffrey Katzenberg, who, you know, is kind oh, of Jeff, sure, a mad genius... Said, you know what would make this movie really popular is if we put the most popular movie star in the world in it, Will Smith. Okay, so then you have Will Smith committed to doing this thing, basically, and then you have to pitch Will Smith, right? You so have, it was like
0: it, it, it was it was pitched as this sort of this Sicilian thing, and then they brought this African American actor in. Yeah, here is what they pitch it as: they go to Will
1: Smith then, and they go, "Hey," and and I've been in on these pitch meetings, and they're really fascinating because they they put up. And they did this to me to get me to do the movies. But they they make boards and boards and boards all around the room of artwork of of what the movie will be like and what their artists have done conceptually, right? And then they they draw they have their artists make up a lot of designs of the character that they want Will Smith to play, right? And they point to it and they they pitch the movie to him and they go, "Okay, the character that you're going to play is this guy, who's a little tiny fish, um, who has dreams of being a big fish. And they come up with a storyline, basically, like, off the top of their heads about, like, you're going to be a big fish, you want or a little fish who wants to be a big fish. Off the top and, of their heads in the respect
0: that they don't really have it walking into the meeting? No, they have
1: it walking into the meeting, but, I mean, this is not written in a script at this point. They say, you're going to be a guy who pretends to kill a shark. Um, and... Ah, uh, you're going to take credit for killing a shark, one of the mob sharks, uh, and that'll and then that makes you famous as the guy who. And they have a basic general idea of what the story is, right? Will Smith signs on to be a part of it because animated movies are you know huge and
0: it, it, it's funny because I, I can't imagine a scenario where there's a pitch meeting with Will Smith like that where he's not almost telling them what to do, or he's not kind of manipulating. I mean, that's the-, the
1: really interesting part of it. Is like. You know, he I'm sure not to put words in his head, but I'm sure he knows it's a three year process and, you know, it'll it'll come together, you know. And that's why I'm saying this is like Jeffrey Katzenberg is a mad genius in, in one way, because so much of this stuff is come up with as they go along from the soundtrack. I was in there on like soundtrack pitching meetings where the exact same process would happen to like ludicrous you know, like, here's the script of the movie. Here's all the artwork. Here's why we want you to be on the soundtrack. Will you do a song on the soundtrack? And then they agree, you know. So I was part of that whole situation. Um, but the really interesting part of it is, is I was brought in there with a year to go, and a lot of the movie was not written. And uh, I was basically there to write the sequel to a movie that had was a year away from being written. But it was so not close to being written that they were like, hey, can you write some of the first one too? And so my job became writing the first one, trying to rush to get it released. Um, And then by the time the first one came out um, and we had written a really, really, really funny script for the second one – they put it through the mathematical equation that said, oh, we can't make money doing a sequel. <laughs> so e- even though they said, wow, this is the best script we've ever gotten at DreamWorks, they couldn't do it because they they wouldn't have made money on a sequel because of all the talent involved and how much they would have had to pay them and you know all, that, all those weird mathematical
0: equations that they have that I'm not privy to. Is that an enjoyable experience at all?
1: It's great. I mean, I found it really interesting. I'm a guy who, like, I, I like being like a producer and a director. So what I found in those situations is everyone wants leadership. They all want to be told what to do, you know? So when I came in on Puss in Boots, for instance, um, there was already a draft, but, you know, no one really knew what to think of it. They knew it wasn't quite Right. And they just wanted someone to tell them what to do. So I would come into meetings and I would be like, "Here's my pitch of what to do," and I would be very confident about it. And go, "This is what I think the movie should be." Now, of course, you know Jeffrey, who's um, again really great and has very strong a very strong vision of what he wants to do. Um, no one's going to tell him what to do. Obviously, he marches to the beat of his own drummer. But um, that was what I would would find is is like I, I really like the meeting people and. You know, going around and talking to the animators and, you know, having meetings with them. And that that's what, you know, that would be a lot like in that situation is every single day it would be filled with meetings of pitch, pitching story, pitching the animators, like what can we do physically in this part of the story, you know. So that's that's why it takes up so much time and why you just don't have enough time to go, you know, hey, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I need to duck out for two hours to go to Century City so I can audition to have five lines on some dumb show, you know. Like, they look at you and go, what are you talking about? You have a job. You're working here. You know? That's my Jeffrey impression.
0: I mean, it's, you know, it sounds like, and, and this is probably... The case with just about anybody in, in in the industry, but for a while there, you were trying to figure out exactly. Like you knew you wanted to be in entertainment. You were trying to figure out exactly how you kind of fit into that puzzle.
1: Yeah, I wish that I had been a little more. Um, you know, I grew up as a fan of movies and of TV shows and of and of comedy, but um, I wish I would have focused a little more in my script writing on just the comedy part of it um, because I kind of was like, I want to do all sorts of different things, so I wanted to do. Uh, these DreamWorks animated things because I loved the Pixar films and I loved Disney movies growing up. You know, I was like, yeah, I want to try that. I want to do a romantic comedy. I want to, so I tried a whole lot of different genres um, when I really should have just focused different on different genres and comedy. In a sense, it sounds yeah, like right? I would always make them funny, but but you know, I spent maybe a year writing a kind of Cameron Diaz ish romantic comedy or Renee Zellwegerish kind of romantic comedy that I was just banging my head against the wall because I knew, like, I like Working Girl, so I should be able to write one of those. Well, that wasn't really my strength, and I should have just, like, really focused on doing, you know, kind of hard comedy movies, you know, like The Hangover and stuff like that, and that's the one thing that I kind of wish I had done in my 30s a little more is just really focused on that, but, you know, I mean, now I have a TV show, so... Fuck all y'all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about the the, the the romantic comedy idea. Was that just sort of like was that like I can make a really big successful movie that's also kind of smart? Or yeah, I
1: was trying to make it smart, but you know, a lot of it also was um, I would get to points in my life where I needed a job, you know, and so I would get a lot of scripts sent to me. Um, I did a lot of rewrite work, which is basically like someone comes up with an idea for a movie and then they write the first draft, but a studio looks at it and goes, We love the concept, we don't love the execution. Will you come in and totally rewrite it? And they're always like page one rewrites where you toss everything in the original script. So, you know, that was one of them where it was like, Oh man, I'm finishing up on a project, I need money. This is one that I think I can do. Because, like, I would read it and go, I have an idea for that. Without really thinking through, hey, you're going to write this for a year, (laughs) you know? So, uh, but I jumped at it and was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then, you know, got lost in the morass of, like, romantic comedy plotting of, like, well, the the male character has to semi-lie to... The Cameron
0: Diaz, but he's really you got doing lost in the tropes tro- in a sense. yeah, because you're trying to subvert
1: yeah. those tropes in an interesting way, but at the same time you really have to embrace them otherwise your thing doesn't work and you can look at a movie like Working Girl that does it really well and go, well, I want to do it as intelligently as that, but I'm not Mike Nichols. How, how do I be Woody Allen without being Woody Allen? Yeah, so you know I mean, whereas if I had just meanwhile like off to the side, Uh, I did a draft of Scary Movie 3 that took me a week that was like the most fun I ever had. (laughs) It was like, oh, jokes. I know how to write jokes. So, you know, and that's what I love about doing the the TV show right now is like we're just in this zone of I have a great group of people. I know how to do this show really well. I think out of everything I've ever done in my life, like I know how to do this show and I'm the best at doing this show. (laughs) And, you know, like it or not, there's no one who can tell me how to do this show better. And when I when I go into the editing room, we're all a team, definitely. But I feel I'm never like in that space of like, "What do you guys think?" What like mm-hmm. I know how to do this show, and I, I'm having a great time doing it. And I think it's super funny, and it's totally my sense of humor. And so, you know, now I feel like I'm in the zone. Whereas for about ten years, I kind of was like trying to write stuff that was not my
0: specialty. In a way though, isn't the the strength of doing a show like that the the ultimately the weakness of the the romantic comedy in that you've got this very well developed outline of what a talk show should be, and you get to play with that a little bit
1: yeah, I mean that's you know and if if there are any burgeoning screenwriters out there, I would suggest use the tropes you know, don't don't be like a lot of comedians who try to write scripts saying like, I want everything to be totally different. I was telling this to a friend the other day who's about to write a script. It's like, plot it like a drama because you're a funny guy and you can't help but be funny. But when you try to plot like a comic, like, oh, I'm going to do something totally unexpected. That's where you get really lost in writing, you know? So plot it like a drama, use all the dramatic tropes, and then... You know, add your humor on top of that and it'll be great. I mean, that's a look at the heat, you know, uh, Katie Dippold wrote that. And I th- think that she would agree that it's not that much different from 48 hours or, you know, any any of the like plot wise. Mm-hmm the what's funny about it is she's really funny and Melissa McCarthy's really funny. And, you know, so it turns out to be a really funny movie. That's a genre movie, you know,
0: is, I mean, you know, now, now that you're kind of, uh, you know, far removed from that, now that you kind of have this nice little object lesson of it's nice to have structure and it's nice to have these, these, you know, these outlines to play with, you know, would, would you try a romantic comedy again?
1: Uh, I think it would have to be kind of personal to me to do a romantic comedy again. I, the one thing that i really want to do is an action movie i love watching action movies and like mission impossible i think i could write a really good action comedy but you know i mean uh, i don't know if you know jason manzukas um do you know him he he and i worked together about a year ago in this thing called the imagine screenwriters lab uh, which the imagine films started and you know i mean that what that basically was was they hired nine or 10 of us. I can't remember to all work together on all of our scripts and they were wildly different genres. There was one woman whose script is being made right now, um, called the good lie with Renee Zellweger as the lead, um, which was, is a heavy drama, um, about, um, people, (laughs) people in Africa who, um, their villages were victims of, uh, genocide and, um, this is a story that's been on 60 Minutes, Um, all these people who moved to the United States from Africa, basically, and are having, you know, culture shock. So, like, there's these kind of heavy dramas. Um, I worked on a kind of CGI action comedy. Zooks worked on uh, a kind of hard-R romantic comedy. Someone else worked on, like, a new Lestat movie. You know, so, and, like, I was in there... Uh, and you know the one one thing that I think I'm pretty good at is films and screenwriting and like screenwriting structure and stuff like that. So I was in there, you know, giving really good notes and and um, working on other genres. So it's something that I am definitely very interested in. I think that I am a, a pretty good at dissecting scripts and figuring out why they're working and why they're not. So I mean, you know, never say never. I would definitely like to at some point but right now with the tv show taking up you know so much of my time um in a great way i don't really have the desire to go write movies right now because it's just taking up so much time and it's so great that in the three months i have off i'm not like you know what
0: i should write a movie in these three months you know i've got to imagine that um you know just coming from where you're coming from that the the show in some sense is fairly heavily scripted
1: uh, it's about half and half uh, if you ever watch it
0: and I you
1: know I'd encourage you to do so.
0: <laughs> well, there's you know sir, there's there's the interview. I mean I'm wondering how yeah. seem, is that is that entirely organic?
1: The interview is totally except for the pit, the the piece right before act 1 ends which is always scripted. Um the interview is always improv, totally improv. The person never knows what I'm going to ask. The banter with Reggie when I introduce Reggie is usually improv um because we did so many this year we scripted a few of them um
0: you just sort of ran out of things to talk about Well yeah like, by
1: the literally the 10th episode that we did last year I looked at everyone and was like what
0: can I ask Reggie about today <laughs> and they're all I mean they're not isn't the second season kind of in the can at this point you Yeah you, we're all done Okay. Yeah, yeah yeah so so you record them pretty quickly
1: we we taped from February to May of this year um 20 episodes um and so that's all improv, and the yeah. Anytime we're we're basically in the studio, um, and I'm talking to a guest. That's all improv. So it's like a third of it is improv, probably or a half somewhere around there.
0: I, I kind of want to get in on like that. I, I don't know if it, it would be the pitch meeting. I mean, obviously a lot of it is coming out of the podcast. But are you sitting down and are you are you are you you know consciously? Asking yourself and, and your writers, you know, how can we deconstruct the idea of the talk show? You know, a lot of the first year was that people
1: who see the show this year as opposed to last year. I think will notice that in the first year, a lot of the ideas were, okay, Letterman does this. What is our version of that? Or Conan does this. What is our version of that? What is our version of the talk show trope? What is our version of your mail? What is our version of jaywalking? Um, and this year, by the end of, of last year, we kind of had run out of those ideas. This year, I said to the writers on the first day, this year, write anything. Whatever idea you have, w- the great part about having a talk show structure is almost anything can be done in it. You know, I can leave the studio in the middle of the show and Reggie and I can go and, you know, solve a mystery, (laughs) you know, and it turns into a mystery show for five minutes. That's, but we always come back to the couch and everyone knows, well, everyone knows a talk show, so everyone knows that a guest is coming up. So that's what, like it feels very comforting to a viewer Mm -hmm. and that's a big problem with sketch shows. I've seen, I've made a lot of sketch shows and I've seen a lot of sketch, sketch shows over the year and point of view is always the biggest problem that people have is you mean
0: like a, a protagonist that they can
1: connect to or it's when when people watch a sketch show on TV if it's a bunch of random things happening sometimes people even like to do it where like there are different actors in every sketch you know point of view Monty Python you can watch Monty Python and go I know who those six guys are so when every idea is different at least I can glom onto those six guys in a way, but that's that's the real problem with sketch shows is SNL doesn't, they stumbled into their genius format of we have a guest host every week. So people are tuning in to see that host. They have a rigid format that they do of weekend update happens at this point, the musical act happens at this point. So when you see something on SNL, you in the back of your mind as a viewer are always going, oh, well, I don't, I don't know that that necessarily worked, but at least I have this coming up and you, and and that's what doing a fake talk show format. That's the kind of freedom it affords is we all know how talk shows are structured. A guest comes out, you know, you, you interview or you talk to the band leader, you banter a bit with that person, you do a comedy piece, a guest comes out, you take a break, you do another comedy piece, another guest comes out. So that's, it's such a great format because we literally can do anything in the show now. And we're always returning to the talk show format and everyone always kind of feels comfortable with it, you know? So that's why I told the writers at the, at the top of the show this year is do anything, a fake movie trailer, do a weird character, anything you can think of will fit it into the show. And that kind of freedom was the freedom that kind of uh, let us do 20 shows this year. Um, because if we had done it like we did last year where we were constantly trying to think of talk show tropes, we would have run out after, like, episode three or something. So I think people are really going to be impressed with the scope of the show this year and how much different styles of comedy there is. Um, and I'm just really proud of it this year.
0: Is that the freedom afforded to you by the network from having a successful first season of a show? Well, bear in mind, there's a person from the network watching me right mm-hmm. now
1: as I say this. <laughs> um but um, no, they've, they've, they've always been really good. It's, it's actually, it just was more of a thing that I wanted to do this year. And, and what was interesting about talking to the network going into season two were a lot of the ideas they had to make the show more accessible was stuff that I wanted to do anyway.
0: So... What's, what's an example of something that they approached One just
1: really super easy example off the top of my head is in the first season during the title sequence when the theme song is going we did not have Reggie announcing who was on the show, narrating it almost. So, And then this year, he now says the words as they come up on the screen. He says, It's Comedy Bang Bang with Jessica Alba, this person, and this person. Okay? and And that... I hope no one is like, oh, they're selling out or whatever, because it is something that the, the network came to me and said, "Hey, we'd like to try this," and I was like, "I want to try that too,"
0: because it, it's an interesting example of um, I don't I don't know if you were consciously heading away from that in the first season, but maybe trying to break away from these tropes and realizing that maybe there's a reason why they're tropes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it it actually does help you watch the show, like seeing and hearing, oh, the world's fastest talking man is going to be on the show helps you enjoy that bit. Whereas if you just saw that or read it while you're distracted, it also like keeps people from changing the channel, you know, like as David Byrne once said, singing is a trick to get people to listen to music. (laughs) You know, it really is like hearing words makes you stay focused on something in a weird way. Whereas if you just are letting it wash over you, It's really easy to go, eh, you know what? I'm going to click over while this 30 seconds is happening. So, I mean, there's there's stuff like that. There's various other changes that are, I think, more subtle or more obvious, I have no idea, to people that people will see this year that were a combination of me wanting to do something or the network wanting to do something or us agreeing that something needs to be done. Um, But I think everyone who works on the show from the network to... You know, Ben Berman, our director, to our entire crew and the writers, we all really like the changes that we made. Like, we, we think that it has strengthened the show. So, you know, we're all really
0: proud of it this year. I mean, the other thing that, that affords you of, of breaking out of that standard, just, you know, bringing guests on and talking to them format is it potentially gives it life outside of TV and outside of that first, you know, that first broadcast that people are watching. Are you thinking of, of life on the internet? I actually think people really like
1: watching this, like binge watching the show. You know, we found when it went to Netflix, it got way more popular than it did when people were just watching it on IFC. Now, I hope people watch it on IFC because. The ratings will determine if we come back or not. The aforementioned guy in the room right now. Yeah. He's the guy who makes the decision. That's what's really weird is he's judging this interview to see if we come back. And if I do a good enough interview, we get a third season. He's got a BlackBerry, so clearly he's doing something very important as we speak. Yeah. He's doing okay. (laughs) But, no, I hope people watch it live or at least DVR plus three. (laughs) You know, but people really do like watching it on Netflix. I think it's a really enjoyable show to watch a bunch of in a row because they're so fun i don't know i think it's like you know watch watching a bunch of something with a storyline is also really fun in a different way because you want to see what happens next but watching my show is just like you really get into the rhythm the more you watch and the variations on the rhythm are fun and i don't know i i think people really enjoy binge watching it so i have my mind on that sometimes you know but I also am really thinking about the people who are there with us every single week. Of like, wow, we're going to blow their minds with this week, because last week we did this. We we have the order in a very deliberate order uh, of sh- in terms of guests or in terms of bits. Not in terms of guests. In terms of like the storylines on each show. They're like, this is something I go over with the network, and I, you know, I don't know that they're used to someone being as anal <laughs> about this as me. But like, I sent them an email which was very much like. Here's the order that I want the show to be released in because this episode is really good a really good primer episode. This episode is not too wildly different from the first episode so that people can get into the rhythm. This episode then as number 3 subtly tweaks that rhythm in a different way but isn't so crazy that people are going to you know and then you know storyline like I have all that stuff kind of mapped out in my head that I really want people to see you know, in order. Um, so, you know, but I also think it's important that people can just dip in at any point and kind of watch one episode and go, yeah, I, I, I understand what that is.
0: Getting back to that idea of, of giving people, you know, something to, to, to get, get back to, I guess it is, it's, you know, are, are you, are you developing yourself and Reggie as, as characters? I mean, is there, is there almost a, is there a character arc across the season? A little bit. I, I, I,
1: Personally, my character has an arc, which is really stupid, which I hope people will enjoy. I'm waiting to see when people pick up on it. Um, But my character does have an arc, and that was one thing that I pitched to the network of, like, there is one particular episode I was like, this really has to come towards the end of the run because my whole character arc that no one cares about is wrapped up in this episode. And to have it earlier in the run... Um, would spoil it, I think. But um, as far as Reggie and I's relationship, the people at the network have said, you know what, you guys really seem like your relationship is kind of deepening this season. And I think a lot of it is, is we try to have more storylines this year. But there's one particular episode that comes out really late, which even the crew was like, this is a really touching episode. <laughs> they were like, they, 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 you know, the guy who's who's my camera, who's focused on me all the time, um, he was like, that episode is really, really good. And really, like, he was like, I was kind of choking up while <laughs> you guys were filming it.
0: Was it was it touching in the writer's room?
1: I don't want to take necessarily a lot of credit for the writing because um, I, I was less involved in the writing this year than I was last year um, in the sense of I just had less time this year. But there were certain episodes that I wrote A lot of, and that was one of them. And that one, I was really like, I can sometimes, in the writing, I really like the sentimental stuff, you know. So, like, I wrote a lot of the Christmas episode, um, and the first draft of the Christmas episode that came in was really cynical and was really like comedy, you know. I mean, our writers are great, and they were trying to do takes on cynical writer takes on Christmas stuff. And I was like, you know what? Let's put a little more kind of sentiment sentimentality in there to balance it out and at the end of it i think the christmas episode is really like sweet in a way and like when we were filming it people were going oh you know and still kind of dirty and cynical and fun as well you know so i mean that's kind of the balance for me like what i really enjoy doing with reggie is kind of playing on our quote friendship unquote um and really playing <laughs> it doesn't
0: necessarily have to be in quotes the uh well, I you mean, guys don't talk much no the- i
1: mean our tv friendship you know because like on the tv show we are best friends i really enjoy writing those scenes of us like hanging out and like oh yeah we hang out every day on the tv show like we go home We're, like we live together apparently you know oh no actually i think we have two totally different different houses but in one sketch we live together but you it, know?
0: but it's like it's it's definitely got that monkeys or like the police playhouse feel to it right
1: exactly like we're a family in a way and that's one thing that i like about doing the tv show is it's not a sketch show where every single week it's not like the whitest kids you know or something like that which you know is a great show but every show you would see would be wildly different they would be playing totally different or monty python they'd be playing totally different people I really you don't have to start from scratch every time. Yeah, I really like the. No, it's Reggie and I, and we have this relationship, and it's gonna. It does have some arcs, and later on in the season, some of the stuff will pay off, and I think it's you know
0: that's really really cool about the show. So why why does the uh, why, why does the podcast still survive? Why
1: why have you kept that around? Why would I give it up? It's, I mean, it's fun to do. It's, um, it's what got me the TV show. So, and people love it. Um,
0: I, I guess I asked from the sense of, of potentially cynical question, but you know, mm-hmm. it seems like pod the podcasting world is full of people. Um, I'm not saying this is in any way indicative of you, but it's full of people who are using. How dare you? <laughs> you're you're it's the full worst. of people <laughs> full of people like you, Scott. Uh, full full of people who are using um what's a pretty open Platform to get your voice out there to kind of work towards something else. So you weren't really necessarily working towards let me get a TV show out of this? No, not
1: at all. It was surprising to me when they offered it to me. I I was doing it for fun and I hope that people don't do podcasts in that cynical way of, well, I have to have one in order to get my face out there or my name. Because, I mean, first of all, no one's watching your face when you're doing a podcast. So, I mean, that's a problem right there. But I, I hope... I think the people who do podcasts who do them really well are people who do them because they love doing them, because they want to express themselves every week, you know. And that's, for me, yeah, I work really hard on the TV show, and it was a ton of work this year. But doing the podcast was really important to me. And so I took great strides and great pains to make sure it was still good mm-hmm. while I did the TV show. And most people did not even know I was working on the TV show because I announces it really super late for some reason. So like we were picked up back in August of last year and I actually did not announce it to the world until February. <laughs> so we were working on the TV show from October of last year through May of this year.
0: So you're not allowed, you're like, you're not allowed to tell anybody publicly.
1: No. And, and you know, owning my own business, I understand that is because every company wants the right to control their own media and PR, you know, and they have times that are beneficial for them. To really, you know, make big splashes and announce things. They can't. It can't just be like, I get the call one day and I hang up and like tweet it. Hey, we're picked up. You know, I mean, there are like marketing plans for this kind of stuff. So, but you know, what I really do think that I did well this year was I made sure no one saw a lapse in decline of the uh, podcast's quality while I was making the TV show. That was really important to me this year, is I wanted the podcast still to be really good and no one to be able to say oh he's doing this tv show and he's not focusing on it i think the podcast is just as good as it has ever been this year and i kept the quality up um you know through my various methods of doing so you know in a really good way this year
0: how, how, how big is the podcasting team I mean I t- you know we tend to think of that as uh you know much more kind of intimate format when I mean, we're sitting here on my terrible recorder oh, do right you now. mean the
1: team of people who are actually uh, like who, who
0: are involved in,
1: in like obvious we have employees at earwolf you know we have three three uh, engineers slash producers we have you know a uh, Social media person, ad sales, you know. So, I mean, there's a small team involved, but while I'm doing it, it's just a lot like this. It'll be me and the people who are on the show and then one engineer and that's it. And we just kind of go. So it's, it does feel very intimate. Some guy checking his phone in the corner. We'll I have the guy from IFC deciding if I get to do another podcast after the one I did. So far that's happened 216 times. And each time I look over and the guy from IFC gives me the thumbs up and I get, no, I get to do another one.
0: I've got to imagine that's one of the really big appeals of the podcast itself, though, is that you, in a sense, have total freedom. It sounds like you have a lot of control over the show, but you really get to do whatever you want on the podcast.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the other great part about the podcast is it's totally improv, so um, I never know what's going to happen when we start. So the TV show is obviously more planned out than that, and it has to be because the network is giving us millions upon millions of dollars. And that just goes to me, by the way. That's on top of the several hundred thousand dollars that go into the actual show. And they can't see your gold sweater on the end. Uh, uh, yeah, the of course. Yeah, yeah. No, the podcast is great because it's just like literally we press record and kind of figure it out as we go along, you know. And and it's very free flowing and improvisational.
0: What's What's the nicest hotel that uh, IFC has put you up in on this on this? Are you you're officially on a junket right now?
1: Uh, I'm a I'm a junket of one
0: hotel. Yes, this one. <laughs>
1: Yep.
0: <laughs> so this this, this is it. qualifies. Yep, this is it. I mean, look at this room we're in. There's a lot. Of, I, think they, I think they hire models to just sit on those couches out in the lobby. There's a lot of really attractive people just checking their phones out there.
1: And New York is so weird in that way. of Like, like you go there during the winter, and it's just like people wearing the bulkiest coats. But then you come here during the summer, and it's just like...
0: is. Does everyone who lives here are, are they a model? I don't understand. I mean, you probably get sick of like because LA it's just attractive people all year round. At least we Yes, but there's our a l- also there. a
1: lot like not everyone in show business is attractive. We're all just powerful, you know. Like so, then you come to New York and you're like, what are all these attractive people doing here? Why don't you move to LA? I don't get it. I don't understand. But God bless them, you know. They're all out there in the up there in the lobby hanging out yeah. and. And they do not care when I walk by, and uh, you know that's the way it should be for all the guys like us. All the
0: comedians are in LA now. We've lost everybody. We've lost our last comedian.
1: No, Todd Barry will always be here.
0: So I'll, I'll just uh, I'll say this right off the bat: if you uh, if you ever are about to sit down for a podcast interview. A, with a sort of seasoned podcasting professional, don't draw too much attention to how shoddy your uh, your your rig is, because um, you know odds are pretty good that uh, things things won't end up too well uh, by the time you actually sit down and re- listen listen to the thing. Um, that's. That's exactly what what happened here. But uh, thank you for for bearing with it. Thanks for listening so much, and hope, uh, hopefully, my side wasn't uh, wasn't too unlistenable. But let's be honest, you uh, weren't tuning in to hear me talk. But I uh, had that exact conversation with uh, Scott Ackerman. I met him in a, uh, a basement in a midtown hotel, which. Now that uh, now that I'm saying it out loud, it actually sounds pretty silly, but a uh, super nice hotel and um, shockingly shockingly nice conference room uh, in the basement down there. But uh, I had a kind of a jumble of wires and, and talked about that for a little bit. And you know, he mentioned that he had just been on a uh, podcast with um, very very famous local New York City comedian. Um, was was pretty unimpressed by his rig, so uh, talked up mine a little bit. And of course, um, you know. Didn't end up too well, but, a uh, great conversation nonetheless. Really, really enjoyed speaking to Scott Ackerman, um, so thanks so much to him for taking the time. Thanks for, to, uh, thanks to IFC for setting that up. New, uh, new season of Comedy Bang Bang, second season, uh, you can watch that, uh, right now on, uh, IFC. Um, if you liked what you heard, send us an email. It's cast at gmail dot com. Follow us on Tumblr! cast dot dot com, um, and, uh, I guess uh, don't forget to rate us on iTunes, and uh, we'll uh, we'll join you again next week. I've got uh, several good interviews lined up. Got an interview with um, with DJ Spooky coming up in the very near future. Uh, Got a a trio of interviews that uh, we did uh, out in Portland, so stay tuned for those and and a bunch of good stuff coming up on RIYL.